Warning, this episode of Ohio is on fire features entertainment of an intense nature. The opinions expressed belong to those that appear on Ohio is on fire and do not reflect the views of any website that streams Ohio is on fire. Download and enjoy. is on fire this is episode 189 this is also episode two of the new professional era of ohio is on fire i am the host daniel diesel welcome once again on this episode we have an exclusive interview with sifari that was absolutely amazing he talks about his life and his music that's coming up later on in the episode but right now we'll go ahead and get into it it's now time for everyone's favorite brand new segment it's now time for O-H-M-V-P, Ohio's Most Valuable Person, People, Pedestrian, Place, Pie. If it fits, it fits. So there you go. I'm still working on the P part. Yes, let's go ahead and do O-M-V-P. Of course, with every O-M-V-P, you give it to someone from the state of Ohio or a group of people or some entity related to Ohio, that did some very interesting, that got themselves in the news, or some accomplishment that it's worth mentioning, and that's how they get OMVP. And I actually, I want to get into um, some statistics about roller coasters. Yes, it's now roller coaster season throughout the world. For any place that's warm weather, as here in Ohio, um, we've had these long winter months we have to endure, but now that's April, all the theme parks opening again. Of course, the two big ones here in Ohio is Kings Island, and then we got Cedar Point. They're both open again, and they are two of the best roller coaster parks in all the world. And it's not just me talking. It's actually a lot of people feel the same way as well, based on reviews. Among the top 50 roller coasters in all of the world, 11 of them are from right here in the state of Ohio. Yes, 11 roller coasters based in Ohio, Eight of them belong to Cedar Point over in Sandusky, Ohio, and three of them belong to Kings Island in Cincinnati, Ohio. And of course, um, they did a top 50. Um, and like I mentioned, 11 of them were in the top 50. But in addition to that, in the top 10 was four of them. And that includes the Beast at Kings Island being number one on the list, and Valvrave at Cedar Point. It's number two on the list. And of course, um, number five and number six is also taken up by Cedar Point Rides. Millennium Force at number five, and then number six is Top Thrill Dragster Coaster. That's amazing. So mostly I want to go ahead and focus on Cedar Point. And there's a lot of people, for this part to be so successful, a lot of people have to be involved in making this happen. In fact, as of 2018, um, the um, the gross revenue came out on the theme parks recently. Cedar Point is the second highest grossing theme park in all of the world. Number two. The only one that's made more money this year, or this past year, was Disney World Orlando. So that's a pretty big deal. And I was thinking about who I could focus on when it comes to success at Cedar Point. There, I found one guy I think is instrumental to the dominance that Cedar Point has had on the roller coaster industry in this past decade. And that guy will be Matt Olmet. Yes, Matt Olmet. He is currently CEO of Cedar Point. He's been he's held that position since 2011. And what he does, he is in charge of the creative direction of the theme park that are to be involved with Cedar Point and the budget. He also has a say on what budget how what the budget is used on. That's his say. I don't think he controls it. He just, he requests what he would like to do with the budget. And then the owners, they decide to give him the money. Because he's not the owner. And this Matt Omen, um, he sounds like a pretty big deal. And doing more research on him. Before he was CEO of Cedar Point, he was a CEO of Disney World Orlando. In their theme parks. He held that position 
for 17 years from the early 90s up until 2010. And it was during that time that Disney kind of had a resurgence. Their theme parks got more popular. Not only that, but the Disney, the Disney brand, it grew and grew. It grew into more ideas. It really had an evolution period. And a lot, of course, a lot of the credit goes to other figures over at Walt Disney. But a guy, I think, is under the radar when it comes to the um, the success that Disney had in the '90s and early 2000s. A lot of that goes to Matt, because he was the mastermind behind a lot of new ideas at the theme parks and Disney. And the other thing was that um, I went to Disney World once. I was 12 years old. I went in 1998. It was a time of my life. I got to meet Mickey Mouse, and I got to meet a lot of people, people I couldn't quite understand at first. You see a lot of people in suits, a lot of people that look nice. They walk around the park, and they greet people. Now, my ego tells me that I possibly could have met this guy, Matt Omit. He could have been walking around the park that day, because he had um, the role at Disney World at the time. So um, I like to think that I've met him once. And he met me. I don't think he wouldn't know who I was, but maybe one day he will. You know what? I would love to do my podcast from Cedar Point. And I would do a podcast from Kings Island as well. I haven't been there in about five years. But yeah, my childhood memories is riding these amazing roller coasters. And I thought they were great. I, and I was the best. I've ridden Millennium Force, which is the fastest roller coaster in the world. That coaster is so fast it'll rip your dick off. That's how fast it is. And what better way to give an O MVP is to is to give it to Matt Omet. He has done wonders for Cedar Point. He makes a million dollars a year. He's a major influence on the roller coaster industry. We may have met once when I was younger. One day I'd like to have Matt Omet on my show. And we here at Ohio's on Fire, we salute you, sir. You are O. M V P O H M V P and that stands for Ohio's most valuable P. P could stand for a lot of things. Well you are it, sir. Round of applause to Matt. Do to do 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 to do 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 do. It's now time for a music showcase here at Ohio is on fire. Right now I want to play two new tracks. It's from a band called Yurf. It's spelled Y. I-R-F. It sounds like Earth, but it's like, it's Yurf. Different pronunciation. Just this past month, they released a brand new album called Rob's Basement. I'm going to play Johnny Rocket, which of course, that track was named after the late movie actor Johnny Rocket. He was a, he was a former castmate of Saturday Night Live. He was also in one of my favorite comedies, Dumb and Dumber. He played the um, silly bad guy. Um, he was like the mafia boss who tried to um, smuggle money. Then it got stolen from him, and he wanted his money back. And the guys from Dumb and Dumber, they had it. And they gave it to him. They, they, they gave him IOUs to make up for it, and he almost got killed. But that's Johnny Rocket. It was named after him. Another track I'm going to play is Dragons Are Real. Another excellent track. And I, I listened to these. I think it's a combination of being mellow and a bit of a jam groove. You could dance to this at a concert, definitely. So I really like these sounds. So definitely, if you can check out your fat concert... Or we get their new album, Rob's Basement. Please do that. So I'm going to go ahead and play those tracks now. Stay tuned for the Safari interview. You're listening to Ohio is on Fire. <laughs>
We are here at Froto Build Bar. I'm with my guest for this episode. He is considered a legend in his field of music. He is one only Sifari, and it's good to finally meet you. Thanks. I've heard nice a lot to about meet you too. Yes, I've heard a lot about you over the years. It's good I'm talking to you today. But and I did some research on the stuff that you've done in your music career um, on four different occasions. I don't know if you did this four straight years or just spread out. You was the headliner for the Bob Marley Festival. It's one of the biggest radio festivals in the world. And I just and of course you've worked with Damian Marley. So I just want to know how did you get connected with the Marley family to do all that? Well, you know, the, when, when I did this was back in the '90s. Yes. And, and well, it went into the 2000s. But the the Bob Marley Festival tour that I was involved with. Uh, was run out of Houston, Texas by a guy named Saran Kyles. Yes. And he actually, when he originally started it in the 80s, he did have the, the, the Marley family actually participated. In fact, a guy that played drums with me, uh, Baba Cootie, uh, Robert Finch from Urbana. Yeah. He was living in Houston at the time, and he, he did some shows with Damian Marley when he was just a little kid. Yeah. And like that. But then by the time I got involved with it, uh, the Marley family had kind of licensed it yes. to, to Saran. And so at that time, it was... It was mostly artists like myself uh, who were not as well known as as the Marleys. Oh yeah, and but but it was a great experience. I got to play all these festivals, mostly in the Southwest, but also we played uh, Ann Arbor a number of times. We played uh, Charleston, South Carolina. The 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 best ones were probably the ones in uh, uh, Las Vegas and yeah. Sedona, Arizona. Those were my those were 2002 when I played those two. Yes, and that was the last year that they did it. Okay, because the uh, promoter Saran, real good guy, he used to be a pro basketball player. In fact, back many many years ago. Pro basketball. Do you know what team he played for? You know, I did not even know he was a pro basketball player until I'd known him for years. I was okay. looking at his bio. I want to say it was the ABA. It was, you know, maybe the 60s or something. Oh, okay. This was a long time ago. <laughs> long time ago, yeah. He's yeah. a really good guy. Saran, really good guy. But he, had, at some point, he had some sort of dispute with the Marley family. I think it was as they got oh, okay. more business savvy, you know, the last 20 years or so. Uh, they just shifted their legal mechanisms or whatever. And, yeah. And his, his agreement with them ended that year, and they didn't renew it, so... Okay. Unfortunately, that was the end of the tour, but I had a bunch of great years on that tour. I played with bands. Sometimes yes. I would bring my own band with me, yes. and, and uh, we'd travel to Texas or wherever. Yeah. And then sometimes I would fly in and get a, another band on the tour to back me, and I had bands from uh, a band from Chicago called Gypsy Far Eye, and they had actually recorded with Bob, uh, really great guys out of Chicago, uh, Vince Huckabee, and... Uh, he was one of the founders, and then uh, also uh, a band out of New Orleans called Higher Heights. Okay. A really excellent band. It was mostly female band, believe it or not. Yes. And really great, great musicians, and uh, and I got to meet so many great musicians. There was a lot of different bands. You know, it was kind of the, the festivals we played uh, featured a lot of the people from the regions we played in. So yeah, so I got to meet uh, bands, a lot of bands from Houston. And musicians, a lot of these musicians were immigrants. So uh, uh, there's a good friend of mine who, uh, uh, Dr. King Cobra, he's called from Nigeria, and he yeah. had played in a band called Wazobia, also with my friend Robert Finch, who's been my drummer on and off for many years. Yeah. And now he's back in Nigeria, but we still correspond a lot. And uh, he was part of the reggae scene for a long time down there in Texas. So I got to just really meet a lot of different people from all over, you know, on that tour. So it was a really great experience for me. That sounds awesome. I'll have to take your word for it because I've never been to those places, but they sound great. But um, and um, speaking of the Marleys, of course, um, you have also worked with Bob Marley's uh, main songwriter, Sanji Davis. Now, um, what years did you guys work on those tracks together? Now, can people find them today if they want to hear them? Okay, well, the the, the tracks that I was just a sideman on these tracks. Okay, it was actually a, a this kind of connected to the tours a friend of mine named Rash Shagai who, yeah. who's from uh, Youngstown yes and uh, now he's been living in Maui now for about 15 years or so but he and I were really really tight uh, he lived in Yellow Springs for a number of years yes. and at that time he and I actually toured together on the uh, uh, the, the last year of the Bob Marley Festival tour uh, his band he, and my band kind of combined and yeah. we, and we took our bands down to all these different events, and and uh, he didn't go to all of them with me, but he went to a number of them okay. with me. And then he he recorded an album, 
Okay. And and he hooked up with Sangi from from Jamaica okay. to be his producer for his album. Yeah. And um, um, a number of the tracks he went to Jamaica to record. But where I what I did was I went to up to New York City with him, and uh, and also a couple of members of the Ark Band, uh, yeah. uh, Eustace and Terry Bob, who are the brother brothers who are the drummer and bass player for the Ark Band. They're they're from St. Lucia originally. Okay. And uh, uh, Shagai, who at that time was known as Shaggy was also the lead singer from the Ark Band way back then, before I, before I, uh, we were working together. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so so he invited me, he said, you, well, you gotta come up to New York City with me to do this thing and meet up with Sangi and everything. And so I kind of just went along to hang out with him and, and you know, I was like, this is really cool. So we, we recorded at this studio called uh, uh, HCNF in, in, okay. in Long Island, um, um, Freeport, Long Island. And it's a really famous historic studio where the Abyssinians recorded this famous reggae song called Sata Masagana. Yes. Which is one of those real, and it's also just a whole lot of great reggae music recorded there by it. The, the owner of the studio, unfortunately, has passed away since then, a guy named oh. Philip Smart. And interestingly, he was also a DJ in New York City, and he had played uh, a record I put out back in the 80s with a band called Scales of Justice. And so when I went there and he, he recognized me, we, we talked about old times and my old record. And, yes. And, um, and then I kind of got recruited into playing keyboards on the thing. I didn't really go there with that purpose. I was just going to hang out with my friend. And so and happy there, said, we need a keyboard man. player. So <laughs> here I am all of a sudden playing keyboards with Sangi from Jamaica. And Sangi wrote the song uh, uh, Wake Up and Live is, is the main song he wrote with Bob. Okay. And he played guitar on that and he told me the whole story of how they wrote the song. And yeah. we, we stayed at his house overnight up there and okay. talked about all these, you know, all of his different connections. He, while we were there, he gave a call to Winston Rodney Burning Spear, his, his friend, you know, Man. the great Burning Spear. And, you know, so it was just kind of a really, a really kind of cool cool experience for me just a kid from ohio hanging out with all these you know yardies up in new york yeah especially with singy davis because the hit of course him and of course bob marley um those guys are like the mount everest of reggae music Absolutely. so even if now um, i know you said you stayed with sangy did bob marley pay a visit at some point did, did anyone else stop over at the sleep oh over? no this was after bob had passed oh, no, i unfortunately never passed. got to meet bob i would have loved to get to meet bob you never met bob trouble. okay no 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 Okay. No, in fact, Bob passed in 81, and I yeah. really was just, I'd always been a fan of Bob's music. I started listening to his music when I was in high school before okay. that. But I was playing blues and rock at that time, and reggae was kind of a yeah. mysterious thing. But about a year or two after Bob passed, I really, really started getting deep uh, into reggae. At that yes. time, in the mid-80s, I, I had a reggae uh, radio show at, at WYSO for about five yeah, years. Yeah, absolutely, WYSO. Yeah. And that really was, you know, I just really, really helped me get into reggae. We had a big reggae thing going on yeah. at Wiseau back in the 80s. You know, that was when Antioch had, had satellite schools. Yes. They had a school in London. They had a school in uh, uh, Berkeley. They yeah. had a school up in Seattle. And so we had these people bringing in, and they also had a work-study program in Jamaica itself. Oh, okay. So we had, uh, uh, we had DJs from Jamaica. We had a guy from uh, uh, Iran, actually. Man. And... Um, there was about six different reggae programs on YSO at that time in one week. And, <laughs> and these guys would bring in all these records from London and bring them back from Jamaica. So I really got exposed to all this great stuff. And we would give away tickets to all the reggae shows coming through. And so at that time, there wasn't a lot of music playing, you know, a lot of reggae music live around here. And my band that I had at that time, the Tom Carroll Band, we, uh, we were adding reggae to our show, but we were yes. really kind of a blues rock band. We started adding more reggae. And then the uh, promoter up in Columbus, Hugo Cabrera, who okay. uh, owned a place called Skankland for many years. Okay. This was before Skankland. Okay. There, was, there was just not enough reggae bands. And so he's like, you guys got to start coming up here and you got to start playing more reggae. Yeah. And so we started doing that. And uh, next thing you know, by 86, I'd started this band, Scales of Justice, which was strictly a reggae band. Yes. It's all history since then, I guess. <laughs> and I want to um, ask about the WYSO thing. I know back in the 80s and 90s, they 24-7, um, they had original local programming. I know since then it's changed. They Currently, they're NPR affiliate, which they're actually trying to get out of that currently. But um, I know, um, do you know, um, how long did you do the, um, you say you did a reggae-based show with them. How long did that last? 
Well, let's see. You know, the first program I had was actually a, a blues show, and I, blues I, I I did both of those for a couple. Of, that was in '83. Yeah. I had a show called "The Blues Had a Baby." And I okay. alternated hosting with a guy named Jose Higgins, who used to be in a band called Low Rent Blues, which was a oh. really famous blues band around here back in those days. Is he still alive? Uh, yeah, Jose's oh. still around. Yeah, he okay. is. Joe Higgins. He, he, he played with, uh, they were kind of the house band at the trolley stop for a long, long time. Okay. Great, great musician, sax player and, and harp player. And uh, right. we would alternate doing Blues Had a Baby. And then a, a guy that played bass in my band was a guy from New York named, a student at that time, a guy named... Kevin Kenner, we call him KK. Okay. He had a show, and and he said he's the one who got me the blue show. And then then uh, a, an opening came for a reggae show, and I guess that was that was around maybe about six months after I started the blue show. So for a couple years, I did both of those, and I kept going till from about '83 to about '89. Okay. And then you know around that time there was a big shakeup at Y. So it, it, yeah. it, it became a lot more. They, they changed management. Yeah. And, and they wanted me to stay on, but I was—I had just put an album out, and I was really getting busy with the music. And I was—yeah, your music they, career is growing. They wanted me to do this Friday night show, and I was reluctant to give up my Friday nights. Back then, you couldn't tape in advance or anything. You yeah. Know? Now I, I kind of regret that because I, I think about all those years if I could have been doing radio. But as you know, that can be—it can be a lot of work, actually. You know, broadcasting. Well, you know, Safari, the podcasting world is open up quite a lot in the last five years so yeah. well first off i'd be um did you ever record your sh the shows that you did in the 80s like do you have like tapes of them i do house? have tapes of quite a few of i them, think yeah. people would love to hear um, your past tapes oh you yeah i would love something. to be able to put them out you know i've been planning on that and actually what i'm i'll push you to do it i think it'll be great yeah you think yes you think, really? i, I want to hear them Okay. The cool. world the, the world wants to hear safari <laughs> on the radio well, i have to work on that you know i have the software and what I'm actually, my first project I'm working on with this software is after my, my upcoming uh, EP, this song called Resist, it's going to have a couple other songs. That's yeah. just, uh, I'm just finishing that up. It's going out in May. Yes. But after that, my next project is the 30th anniversary of my, uh, my one and only vinyl album oh, right. uh, that I recorded with my band Tom Carroll and the Scales of Justice. came out in 89. Yeah. This is the 30th anniversary this year. And okay. this album is actually still uh, selling. And, and about four or five years ago, I found a bunch of people had posted it on YouTube. And I was like, oh, really? And then next thing you know, these guys from France <laughs> are wanting to buy a bunch of albums from me. And, yeah. And a label over there wanted me to reissue singles of it and the problem I had was my master tapes at all just yeah. wrecked over mm. the 30 years but I did find some some uh, mixed masters not unmixed they wanted me to do dub mixes and I didn't have, my multi-track masters were the, you know this was back when we did everything on analog yes, tape yes. and they had unfortunately been kind of wrecked by mold and stuff uh, and, uh. And, uh, but back then I had I was uh, very fortunate to be involved with the recording workshop of Chillicothe. Yeah. And uh, I was able to record a huge amount of stuff up there. I mean, I was kind of like the, kind of the unofficial house band almost, you know. Anytime uh, all the instructors up there would, would uh, call me to do a, at least one session, you, you kind of, you get to do a session in exchange for working with the students. Yeah. yeah. And um, what I did was I was kind of the guy they would call like if somebody canceled, which happened pretty often. Yeah. And and that's when I started playing all the instruments myself because they I got a number of times where they'd call me up and very last minute, can you come up and record something? I really need it. So I would get in the car, drive up to Chillicothe, and you know they'd have the instruments and I'd just do it all myself. And yeah. that was kind of the beginning of uh, uh, of a lot of the recording that I've done since then was that the recording workshop thing. Man. Um, well, I want to elaborate one more thing on the question because I was asking about like, the work you do with Sanji Davis. Now, um, the, the, the work that you did with him and, of course, the other works like you talked about 1989, what's the best place that people want to hear those tracks? Like, can they buy them online? That's a good place to find stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, that, that, the stuff I did with Sanji was, was Ross Shagai's album. And, and uh, the, the name of the album is called I Awake. And uh, uh, I really played a very small role. I mean, he had yeah. on that album. He he had slide down bar. He yeah. had uh, 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 just a Chinna Smith, a huge roster of the, the very top 
uh, Jamaican musicians because Sangi worked with all these guys and knew them all. And yeah. He, Sangu is, is, is a member of the 12 Tribes of Israel, which is a, a Rastafarian organization. Okay. And uh, a, back in the, in the 70s especially, most of the famous reggae musicians belonged to that organization. Uh, Dennis Brown, Bob Marley, okay. uh, Sister Carol. Yeah. And uh, when, in fact, when we were up there in New York City, we went and hung out at the Twelve Tribes yeah. uh, uh, house. They have a big house there, and yeah. and uh, they served us Ital food, and uh, we hung out with Sister Carol. And yes, it was very cool. It was very cool. But uh, okay, the, uh, the other material uh, uh, you can find uh, uh, the Scales of Justice thing I was talking about. I am going to be reissuing that as a digital release later this year, and I've got a. Bu okay. it, it was originally a, a six-track tr EP vinyl, yeah. And uh, the vinyl is still available if you just go online. Uh, a disc, what, what's it called? Uh, there's a discography, Discogs or something like that. I think. Yeah, I think it's called Discogs. Yeah, I, I, I can't use that. You know, there's a, there's some private sellers, or, and I do still have some copies myself that I'm selling, but I'm yes. almost totally out. And then uh, the digital release is hopefully later this year. It's going to have a bunch of uh, unreleased songs on there from the same era. All right, excellent. I look forward to that. I want to hear some new release stuff from you, and I've checked out your past stuff from time to time, so it, it's great. It's great stuff, so I do look forward to that. Um, now, recently was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. They have it every year. Now, is there anyone that you've ever worked with or just someone that you really like who's currently not in the Hall of Fame that you'd like to see in the Hall of Fame? I would love to see Mikey Dredd, okay. a.k.a. Mikey Campbell, Michael Campbell, from Jamaica. Uh, I did get to work with him. I, I, I've got pictures of me on stage with him. He unfortunately passed away yeah. in 2006. He had a brain tumor. It was really yeah. sad. I was I was about to do some recording with him. We were we were oh, planning man. our recording sessions when he passed away. Uh, but Mikey worked with. Uh, he was the first DJ in Jamaica to play reggae on the radio. You know, back in the 70s when. Reggae was really, to me, that was the golden era. A lot of people call it the golden era. Yeah. But they didn't play it on the radio in Jamaica oh. for many years. And, and Mikey Dredd was the first guy to play it on the radio. And then he moved to Britain and he became a, a producer. He worked with The Clash. Yeah. He worked with UB40. In fact, uh, uh, the Sandinista album, a lot of that is produced by Mikey. He told me The Clash were really, really good to him. He said UB40, not as, not as good to him. Okay. Said, but he did say also that the Clash, he didn't make much money because they didn't know how to run money. It wasn't really, he said it wasn't like they didn't mean for him to make money. They just had no clue about the business end of things. Oh, okay. And, and so he really didn't make much money off of that. But um, he was one of those guys who, he had his own albums out. I used to play his music when I was a DJ. I love his music. And he was very much a, an yeah. innovator, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and he really did a lot to help like the Clash and, and UB40 really brought reggae to a whole new audience. You yeah, know, to they the crossed it over to the, the. Nowadays we talk about reggae rock. Well, those guys, that that early stuff that Mikey did with the Clash and UB40 was, yeah, really the, and bands like Steel Pulse, that British stuff. That was really the beginning of the whole reggae rock thing. So I okay. think Mikey really deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, if he was responsible for that, he should be. That sounds awesome. Yeah, he was, he's really, yeah, check him out, man. He's really man. something else. I'll definitely look him up. Now, of course, you started making music around the 80s. Of course, nowadays, people that make music, we live in the internet age where you can just put stuff on Bandcamp, Reverend Nation. It's up there just like that. But when you was working on music, it wasn't that simple. So what I want to know from you is that during a time when there was no internet, um, what was a good way to get your music out there for people that wanted to hear it? Well, you know, it was it was tough back then. What it was it was different. I mean, there's the, the, I was very fortunate because of the recording workshop that I was able to record. I think yeah. a lot of people back then we, we couldn't just record at home. You know, you, you, you it didn't was have very that, very no. difficult. Excuse me. Sorry. But but um, what what was beneficial for me was. Um, that recording workshop relationship where I was able to record a huge amount of material. Yeah. Now a lot of it was unmixed, so I did often, or it would be you know a rough mix. What we usually would do is we would give the the engineer that was the the, the working with the students after we finished the session. Yeah. Usually you get a six-hour session. Okay. And, and then uh, if we gave him a six-pack, 
they'd let us hang out all night. We'd stay there till like five in the morning, <laughs> mixing and, and, and you know, it, it, I really learned a lot and I was able to get some mixes. But then I also would often have to take the stuff to another studio and pay for studio time. Yes. So there was, you know, there was always that expense. Yeah. But I was fortunate when I put out the vinyl, uh, it did cost money. I had to spend a lot of money in, on, on promotion, but I was fortunate that I got a couple of physical distributors. Back then in reggae, you know, it was very regional and, yeah. and I was able to get uh, uh, two different Jamaican uh, uh, distributors. One was based in Miami and one was based in Toronto. Yeah. And what they would do is they would take the record around to all the little shops and then the guy from Miami also, back then there was Tower Records which was a chain store yeah. all across and, and he got me in the chain stores. Yes. And, and, and ironically, this was 89, it was kind of the, the beginning of the CD, very, very beginning of CDs and the end of vinyl in yeah, a way. So I actually sold more cassettes at that time than I sold vinyl. Yeah. And the vinyl was more uh, like it is now. It was more of a promotional thing for DJs because DJs still like to have vinyl yes. and CDs. They want something physical, but you know. Yeah. Then we did not have at all downloads or streaming. So you had to be able to, it was tricky I, to, to be able to track the record. What I would do is I came up with all kinds of schemes. <laughs> I, I, I had little postcards that had little check marks, like, did you get this? What did you think of it? Um, which, which song was your favorite song? And they would yeah. just, and do you have any comments? And then I would stamp it so that they could send it back to me real simply. Snail mail. Yeah, snail so mail. So the way you can just send an email and me the answer. You had to yeah, like Exactly, you had to snail mail. It, it was really a long time. It was, it, things would take a long time, you know, because <laughs> It, it, it would, uh, and, and a lot of these people were in other countries because reggae yes. was really more international than, than and, and back then there was a very small American scene, especially here in Ohio, you know. Man. But yeah, so I had to do that, and then it was cool, you know. I would, it, it, I would go to the post office, and there would be like all these, po the, these postcards would kind of trickle in, and then oh yeah. yeah, we loved it, we liked this track, blah 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 blah, and you know, every once in a while I might get something negative, but it was like ninety percent positive feedback, and yeah. And uh, that that album was really good for me, and it it, it um, there was actually actually a local connection too. One song yeah. on that album was in a, a movie that um, um, Julia Reichert did, yeah, uh, uh, and um, uh, and Steve Bogner. It was there. It was a. It wasn't a documentary. It was a feature film that they did, and yes. it had all local music in it. And our, my good buddy Rev Cool yeah. suggested one of my songs, and so that a song called Tricky Business was in that movie, and that, that yes. was really awesome to have that in there included everybody included the local music scene dayton really has yeah. always had a great music scene for the size of our city i agree we yes. really have an awesome music scene yeah there's a great support system for it too because i play big cities like new york los angeles i mean they have a music scene as well there's so much talent but there's so much of it you don't know where to begin where That's here right. in dayton you'll eventually if you're looking for something you'll eventually find it it won't take long Absolutely. And, you know, guys like you calling me up and saying, hey, come on and do this. This is the kind of support yeah, was, that we have here. Yeah, really I was able to find it. you easily. Rasta is the beast.
Now, 10 years ago, you won an award for a track called Peaceful Village. I just want to know the story behind that song. What's it about and what caused you to make that song? Well, you know, Peaceful Village. Um, when I wrote the song, I was, you know, it's been a while, but I, I, the vibe I was going for, I was, I've always been interested in comparative religion and different, yes. and, and, and different uh, spiritual thought and everything. And, you know, I was thinking of two different things when I wrote this, well, three different things really. Uh, uh, the, the ancient Hebrew concept of a peace village yeah. or a refuge, a city of refuge, I think is what they would call it. Yeah. Where, you know, uh, uh, if someone had done something wrong, they could go there and be safe and and and, and maybe be rehabilitated. Yeah. Of. And then in, in Native American culture, they had a similar concept, and they also had what they called peace chiefs. Okay. You don't hear about that that often. In yeah. fact, some of the peace chiefs wore dreadlocks, believe it or not. Yeah. And um, the peace chief as opposed to the uh, war chief or whatever, their job was to, to, to maintain a place of peace where no matter what, there was always peace. And so when I wrote the song, I had that concept in my mind. And then I also had the concept of uh, right here in Dayton, we have the Dayton Reggae Fest. And it's almost like, yes. you know, we've been, it's been such a blessing to do it for now 30 years. And and when, when we go to that festival once a year, we it, it Somebody said something to me about it being like a little village, and it kind of clicked in my mind. And then, and then you know, all those other thoughts I had kind of brought that song together. I think so yes. I was thinking about the idea of, of 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 how cool it is that we were able, and really, music festivals in general are like that. But yes. especially these reggae festivals that we play, that you can get all these different people together. And we're all just here, you know, in peace and love, yes. listening to music and vibing and feeling unity and love together. And there's no negative energy. It's a time to do that because you know what I think people do buy tickets to go to those events. But you're also meeting like-minded people. You're there because you love reggae or any other thing that you love to do. You buy a ticket, go check that out. So I, because other than that, I think it's probably tough to do that in the real world because you got to deal with other people. They may not agree. They might. They True. Might, they True. might. They may not agree with your opinion, and that's going to cause conflict. So I guess a regular Facebook will be the time where you can trust people to do something like that. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know everybody comes through. You know they yeah. may not even be a fan of reggae music. But yeah. Hey, they just come through for the vibe, and then you know you you, you feel the love. You know you, you really feel do. It. All right, now um, what's um? You've played many venues throughout the world. You've been done, you've done festivals. What's the biggest venue you've ever played that, that you have a memory of? Probably uh, like a coach, like a Coachella type place. Did you, did you ever play a place like that? Something else. Not really. really. You know, most of the fe I have to be honest. Most of the festivals I've played were probably not more than maybe. 20 30,000 people which it's a lot of people yeah. but, you know may not compare to to Woodstock or something yeah you know, it, uh, when we played the Marley festival uh, w the the ones in Houston were yeah. really gigantic they would sometimes have as many 40 to 50,000 people yes and it was in a big park downtown but it was you know the venue was a park so it was uh, uh, they had like st two stages on either side. Yeah. So as a venue, it, it, it wasn't really a music venue. It was just a park. That, a park. That had a festival. But as, as far as uh, venues I played, it wasn't a huge venue, but it was the coolest venue ever was the Sedona, Arizona. Yes. Uh, their version of Red Rock. They call it Red Rocks also. Uh, yeah. And it's really an awesome venue. I mean, uh, that's one of my best memories ever, 2002, playing that festival. Yeah. It was, um, I had I had a band from New Orleans, Higher Heights was backing me up. Yeah. And uh, I also sat in with a, 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 some friends of mine that are Hopi Indians that have a, a mm. reggae band called the Wailing Coyotes. Mm. And I sat in with their set and jammed with them. And, uh, and there was a whole lot of Native Americans at this festival because it's right there in Sedona, you know. And the venue was a really, really, really nice stage with a yes. large covering. And then... It's built on a hillside, kind of, and, and, and there's red rocks just everywhere, you know. Yes. It's, not, it's not the same as the Colorado red rocks, but it's almost yeah. better because it's a little bit smaller, but really, really just the vibe, you know. There's yeah. something about the air there in Sedona. There's a vibe, and 
It cool. was a really awesome, awesome place. All right. Now, to work these concerts, you had to work with many music promoters. What was your favorite music promoter to work for? Mm. <laughs> you don't like any of them? No, no <laughs> I really, I'd have to say um, Saran Kyle's the guy who put on the Bob Marley Festival tour. Okay. Really, he, and technically he was what they, he was the producer of the, of the tour, and then they would have a different promoter in each city. Yeah. But, but you know, he effectively was, uh, was the promoter. And, you know, I really have a lot of respect for him because that's something really took a lot of, uh, just willpower to be able to it wasn't just a tour and it wasn't just a festival it was a touring festival yeah and you know the whole festival would go with two days every every festival was a two-day festival yeah and the whole festival would have to go you know the vendors and everybody a lot of them were coming from new orleans a lot of them were coming from houston it, that was the two places where a lot of the people came from yeah. but then there would be people coming from cali and from chicago and from ohio and yeah. we come and and we would all you know converge on all these different cities all over the mostly the southwest but also other parts of the country and and that he was able to 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 orchestrate that so effectively was really i have a lot of respect for him and he was also you know a nice guy he treated us with respect he, yes you know, he made sure that our airfares were covered, and he covered our expenses, got us hotels, and oh, that kind man. of stuff. That's and, important. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, uh, that most people that are not in the music business don't realize how much. I'm always been a self-managed uh, artist, and I have to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know. Yeah, well, a lot of money. I'm thinking about the money because you got to invest all that. You got to make sure that they don't screw the tickets because exactly. they miss the concert. You, and it'll set everything off. Like, you know, you could screw everything up. Like, if a promoter doesn't do right by you and you don't get your tickets or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And see, that's the thing. Back then, that was what was so great about those kind of events is that all I would have to do would be to uh, show up, basically, yeah. and, you know, bring bring my, make sure I had the band part together. And then yeah. it, uh, if I couldn't get my band, he would make sure I got a band that was already yes. on the tour to back me up. And yeah. that was, and, and, Yes. Part of the event was that we all had to play a certain amount of Bob Marley, and yes. that was also good because I eventually went on to, you know, now we've been doing a Bob Marley tribute regularly for, for many, many years, and yes. learning Bob Marley's music is, is really good for musicians because Bob was, was really a great songwriter, he, yes. he, and, and the musicians that he played with had great arrangements. And, you know, nowadays reggae after the digital era became a lot more like hip hop. It was just a, a beat and somebody singing over. Yes. Bob was a songwriter, and 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 he and like working with Sangi was the same way. He was really, really a stickler for you have to do it the right way. You you have to have this many this instrumentation yes. has to be played properly, and you know, and I, and, and and reggae is the kind of music where uh, you know, for me that 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 root of the music is important. I, I, I don't want to just do uh, a simplified version of it or a modified version. I want to go back and look at the roots and do that roots version of it. Absolutely. Just checking the mic. Make sure. yeah, the mic's still okay. Um, now, I want to address White Elephant in the room. There is a stigma with reggae artists that they're really into marijuana. And I know not all of them are, but in your case, I've done my research, you are a supporter of Miracle Marijuana. Oh, yeah. And, um, now I am someone I've never had marijuana in my life, um, so I just want to know from your experience and t to telling someone that that's never done it, how the, what's the best benefit for people that use it? What, how's it help people? Well, you know, uh, it, it depends on what you want from it, but I think mm -hmm. it's it's uh, uh, being a Rastafarian. You know, we we look at or I and I we like to say look at at herb and we we call it herb or ganja. Rather than marijuana, because marijuana has got some racist undertones. Yeah. But uh, uh, we look at herb as as a sacrament and, yeah. and a, a sacred healing plant. And if you go back into the early '60s and '70s era, you can hear a lot of reggae songs where they talk about herb can can cure cancer, herb can heal you. Yes. And 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 we see now that. The science is now proving all that to be true. Yes. And and my you know I'm kind of a, a an herbalist in my life anyway. I've I've been a vegan forever. And I I don't use any kind of pharmaceuticals. I never really have. Yeah. And and 
I, I think that uh, cannabis should be treated just like any other herb. It's 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 a it's an herb. You grow yes. it in your garden, and it, it's not dangerous. It's it's a healing plant, yeah. and and uh, you know. They're, they're just like any other substance there may be yeah. some people who don't react well to it so I yes. wouldn't say everybody in the world should use it yeah. there might be some people who who might not want to could use be it. allergic to it, it is yeah exactly like, you know, like peanuts or anything peanuts. else but I think overall it's 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 just uh it's a safe easy way to relax yeah. and, it, and it's also been proven to be uh, really good for you and what's interesting to me is the science has now found that there are actual receptors in our human body yes. for the cannabinoid, they call it the endocannabinoid system. Yes. So we're actually designed to, 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 to accept cannabinoids, which include, of course, uh, CBD, yes. which doesn't get you high, but can really help people feel better. We know it's, it's, it's healing children that have... Uh, uh, in fact, I know some people, uh, some, some, some Rasta I know for yeah. years, who had uh, um, seizures and 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 uh, yes. it helped them with it. Yes, and it's been used to treat some forms of cancer. Has been used. People have used it when they were recovering from a stroke. It was able to balance out their breathing system. Um, I think the reason why I got the bag stigma that it did for all these years is because the government can figure out a way to make tax money off of it because they make money off of beer and cigarettes, mm -hmm. and those are way worse for you than marijuana. That's um, right. Because not. A, I, I mean, the reason why I didn't take marijuana um, myself, I know a lot of people, I know some people in my life they have, that's like, oh, you got to try this marijuana. I mean, it's not like I thought I was going to be a bad person because I did take it. Is that um, it is, even in the small doses, it does impact you, whether it's good or not. Like, um, I just, um, I, I never respond well to drugs. Like, whenever I was sick, I would, of course, my mom and my um, grandparents, they take me to the doctor. I'll take this medicine. It would really affect me, even if I took very little. And then I so see you're real people, sensitive. I'm sensitive yeah. to it, but also there's people in my life, they did abuse drugs, and again, I've, I have heard that a gateway to people taking bad drugs, they start off with marijuana. That wasn't, that eventually that, that didn't become strong enough. So then they would start doing heroin and beer and anything that would knock them out. So I have heard the story of marijuana being a gateway to people that want to do worse drugs. So that's something that, that's always been on the back of my mind. Well, like, you know, I think that's part of the propaganda we've heard all these years. Yeah. But it's also part of the, you know, because it's illegal. If it yeah, was it not illegal, is. it would never be a gateway, you know, because yeah. because uh, it's it's the same guy selling both things. You know what I mean? Yes. And and but but I but you know I also really don't do well with with pharmaceuticals. I not taken any pharmaceuticals for a long 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 time yeah and and i do use herbal remedies for stuff and i think the thing is of course cannabis is stronger than a lot of other herbs and it can but but again like hemp yeah you know the idea that hemp was illegal ever just doesn't make any sense at all it was yeah. it, it was if you look into the history it was really I mean, Henry Ford actually made a hemp car at one time. Yeah. You know, hemp plastic and things like that are really, really necessary for us now. We see the world uh, getting really near the precipice with, with uh, yeah. pollution and, and global warming and yes. stuff like that. And I think that uh, these alternative energy sources were, were covered up. You know, uh, yeah. Rockefeller and those guys back in the day, Enslinger, all these guys... They, they created this false narrative about cannabis, and they, that's when they started calling it marijuana. Was, yeah. was, although, you know, of course, my whole life, that's what we called it, so there's a lot of our names for it. But, yes. but, um, um, is it true that um, places that do have legal marijuana, they have hemp clothing? Because I know, um, I've been told that hemp, is, you can make fur out of that. Do you know they have oh, a yeah, line? Oh yeah, you, you can make all kinds of hemp clothing, you can make a hemp creek, you can make a house, you can build a house. So they have that in California and Colorado, they have like hemp clothing lines. Oh yeah, can, definitely, oh, yeah. yeah. In fact, I, That's wild. Uh, Michigan I'm sure will be having it soon now that they've gone fully legal. And, yeah, And, and Ohio recently. is finally taking measures you know, They're the, trying. the federal government legalized hemp, yeah. and now Ohio is working on legalizing hemp. And 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 when I got to get in a plug here, you know, we are part of the Ohio Marijuana Expo series. Yeah, I've heard of that. And yes. we played one in Akron last month, and we'll be playing one in Cincinnati June eighth, and then another one in August in Columbus. Yeah. And it's a uh, it, 
you know, there's no no cannabis at the events, but yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to, for people to learn all about the different things, uh, and you the, the, you'll learn about stuff like like hemp clothing, and but it's mostly about the medical benefits. Yes, would you say that medical marijuana helps you make music? Has that something that's affected your music in any way? Well, you know, musicians have been using cannabis forever. I mean, they yeah. say uh, it's of course the it's just a myth. I don't know whether it's true or not, but there, there, there's mythology in, in, in uh, uh, the Rasta movement that, that cannabis grew on Solomon's grave. They yes. say that King David used cannabis, and that the Levitical priests used cannabis. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading the story of Buddha. Buddha used, uh, yeah. he ate the seeds. Of course, they don't have, they make you high, but that yeah. they have nutritional value. Uh, hemp seeds, essentially. And uh, uh, so, you know, there's, uh, for musicians, Louis Armstrong, cannabis user his whole life. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bob Marley, of course, you know, it it, it can it can uh, bring a, a creative energy to to a creative person. Yeah. Artists, musicians, you know, yeah. writing the songs. It it definitely can put you in a more creative place. I wonder if there's a scientific study on that because you know a lot of people agree with that. I know Snoop Dogg, he's a big promoter of it he said it helps his music it must affect a part of the brain that makes you want to be creative because that's what most people that do support marijuana they say that it helps them creatively i'm trying to think what part of the do you know do you know personally what part of the brain that would affect have you done your own scientific studies or you know i i I can't say that i I, i'm sure somebody has yeah somebody (laughs) somebody out there has but but my my view of it is is more of a spiritual thing because being a rasta we look at herb as a spiritual way of communing with with Ja and and uh, so for me the concept of God is really a, the creator so we each have our own inner creator yeah so when we're writing when we're when we're uh, uh, playing music when we're creating art we are we are expressing the spirit of God of the yeah. creator yeah so so I think that herb being something made by the creator yes it is is essentially we're connecting with that inner inner spiritual godlike person within that we all have you yes. know the bible says the holy spirit was breathed into man so yes i, I view that as as uh, we all have a a inner god kind of in, in ourselves you know uh, the christ that within or perhaps a way for god to speak to you privately when otherwise he he wouldn't be yeah Something exactly like that. that's right. right that's right all right that's that's well that's very deep man <laughs> i feel mine just hearing that explanation i do have one more question for you for this interview but i think we get a nice mini discussion out of it um we live in a time where um, religion and politics it causes it brings the worst out in people and we live in a term time involving those two things um, some of those elements are indeed, are indeed found in your music you talk about finding spirituality talking to God and you t- touch up on some political subjects and I mean that's fine um, some people don't, can't handle that very well like the moment they hear a political point of view they either agree with it or they get really angry that's just how it is yeah. right <laughs> so I want to know from you what advice do you have for people who get really stressed out by the subjects of religion and politics yeah, that's that's a really really um, current thing, yes, you know. I, yes. And, and uh, I wrestle with that myself, you know, because yeah. I think just like everybody else, the last few years, we all get caught up in the you know the political argument on Facebook yes. and the, all that stuff. And I've really been making a real strong effort personally to to try and keep a level vibe, to not get let let social media become. Uh, uh, an endless argument, you know, because and I, it think should, I think social media means very, I mean, it does play a role, but it's just a bunch of people behind their screens at the end of the day, just typing stuff. Really, you can't really accomplish anything unless you're in person. Having That's a real right. Conversation. Like you, you and me are having right now, we're having a real conversation. Yeah, we need more of that. There's, you know? Yeah, I agree. There's, <laughs> there needs to be more of what we're doing unless of trolls run their mouth on the internet not knowing what they're talking about. There's a lot of misinformation being spread because of trolls because oh, they have knows. an agenda yeah yeah and and one you know i think we can all become a troll if we're not careful if you, I, yeah, I, agree. I don't want to be one myself and and like i try really hard not to do that 
and I see, I even see people who are good friends arguing, and, and I think, oh, you guys shouldn't be arguing over this on Facebook. Go home yeah. and talk about it in person, and you, you won't have an argument. Yes. You know? But I think that um, my, my role as a musician, I've always, before social media, really my whole life, I've always viewed my role as a musician as probably more serious than some people. I started out like everybody else, you know, I wanted to get girls, so I played guitar, yeah, right? of course. But, but as I matured, and just, I don't know if it, was, if, if it was just because of my own personal feelings, but I feel like being a, a musician, it makes me a healer, and it's, it gives me a certain responsibility. And, and so when I'm putting music out into the universe, mm-hmm. and I know people are going to hear that, and, and the lyrics they're going to hear, I want it to have some kind of a positive impact. Yeah. Even if even if it's a, I've learned over the years, you know, I don't always play for people who are really fans of mine. I do a lot of gigs where I'm playing a background music at a party or something. Yeah. And and I still can see that as as having a positive role because, yeah, you know, when you music itself, especially reggae music, yeah. has a certain heartbeat, has a certain hypnotic. I've I've watched the last few years I've played some nursing homes and I've watched I've watched people disabled people elderly people not familiar with the music at all but as they listen to that music you can see their body starts to move a little bit they start to get relaxed and I can see that there's a physical healing that actually can take place and I think that also it can the same thing can happen spiritually and even uh, intellectually if the if the lyrics that we give people are are positive lyrics are 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 or or lyrics that maybe make them think like I, I I've done songs where I where I talk about history you know and 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 I don't try and I don't want to preach at people I just want yeah, to try and try and let them know uh, my point of view but also just kind of put the history out there for them Here, here's here's what I see but if you put it in musical form. You know, it's not. It's 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 much easier for people to to yeah. absorb it. I think rather than you know screaming it at them or yeah. putting it in all caps on uh, Facebook or something like that. You know. Now, Safari, you're on Facebook. There's, is there other places that people can find your music right now? Yeah, um, you know, I have a whole lot of music up on the usual outlets, iTunes and Spotify and okay. and uh, uh, Deezer and and then I also have a, a SoundCloud account where yeah, mostly. SoundCloud. Uh, my SoundCloud's got a lot of the different covers I've recorded and, you know, some demos and yes. stuff. And then uh, Reverb Nation and Facebook, yes. together I have an app. Uh, I've got 11 original songs on there that people can download for free. Absolutely. And, um, and I'm getting ready to be dropping a new single, well, or I'm sorry, a new EP. Uh, a okay. song, and, and YouTube is another place you can hear my music, of course. Absolutely. And uh, uh, this new song I got, Resist, uh, the, the video of us playing it, with the, me playing with my band, it's an original song, and uh, uh, we played it at uh, Dayton Reggae Fest, and was it was filmed by uh, DATV. Yes. And I edited that song out and posted it on Facebook, and I just could not believe the response. I've got really, really, just it really went viral. So I said, well, I better record this song. And, yeah. And so that's going to be coming out uh, in May, and uh, um, that'll be on all the usual outlets. And that's also I'm going to have CDs of that as well. Absolutely. Be the first actual physical CD I put out. That last. CD I put out was strictly a digital. Yeah. It was through a digital label called uh, Rebel Sound Records, right. and uh, that one was called Naturalistic, and uh, it, it, it's probably the most recent stuff I yes. have. Yes, Safari, this has been great. Um, I definitely will be listening to more of your music. I'll look your old stuff up, and maybe I'll catch you in concert one day. Hey, yeah, that would be great. All right, so I will. Take my
planets Down in the suburbs everything is plastic Round on the bomb and situation is drastic Man has lost touch with the land Now is the time we have to overstand Don't make me run, run, run to the hill Tired of Babylon, where is a bit? Don't make me run, run, run to the hill What's your definition of success? Graduating, and without all that college debt. Hiring someone out of college with the right skill set. Taking my passion and turning it into a career. Your success starts here, Owens Community College. Welcome back to Ohio's on Fire. Just now you heard Run to the Hills from Sifari. Also in the middle of the interview, I played a snippet of his um, classic track, Peaceful Village, that won him an award. It's now time for the last of Ohio. So I want to talk about a playlist in particular that I've always been happy with. Because whenever days get stressful, and I just want to forget about the world for a while, there's a lot of playlists I do get into, but there's one that I want to talk about right now. I do like reggae, but there's another genre that I like even better that I've always enjoyed since I was a kid. I really like ska music. And more particularly, I really like 90s ska because during my growing up years, ska was really popular again during that time. Like, they were actually hit songs on the charts. And it's a combination. It's kind of like it's mellow, kind of like what you would see in reggae, but it's also really fast. It's like fast-paced reggae. I felt and there's always a lot of strong messages in these songs they tell you um, about um, just forgetting about like you know if life sucks you just grab a lemonade and squeeze it or grab a, I said that wrong you grab a lemon and you squeeze it damn it that's what you do but anyway but that is um, that's that's something I've always enjoyed is ska and one playlist I've always enjoyed it's been around for like five years it's on YouTube this was made by Peter Peterson, but some, but some 90s ska. And actually, the whole title is 90s ska music videos. It's one of my favorite playlists ever, but it features Save Ferris, Real Big Fish, No Doubt, Super Rad, Goldfinger, The Mighty Body Boston's, and The Toasters, plus many others. There are 47 tracks featured on this playlist. It's one of my favorite playlists ever. And it just makes me feel great after I listen to it. I always enjoy whenever I, I get a chance. I, I kind of wait. Once I listen to it, I kind of wait two months for listen to it again. That way I don't get sick of it. And it's amazing. In fact, I'll probably listen to it after this episode because it has been a while. But uh, if you are into ska or if you're someone that's looking for some music to listen to for three plus hours and the, the relief stress, if you're having a stressful day, well, here's something that's positive and full of energy. I recommend 90 Scott Music Videos by Peter Peterson. I doubt that's his real name, but that's the name that he used. So check out Peter Peterson's 90 Scott Music Videos playlist. And really, if that doesn't do the trick, I mean, if you don't like ska, please listen to music. If you're under a lot of stress right now, maybe there's something bad going on in your life. A good healer is music. Listen to something. Listen to reggae. Listen to Sifari's music, listen to Yerf's music, and you'll feel better about life. You block out the noise, block out the haters, go into your little world and make the magic happen. Of course, I, may, I create my own world while I listen to 90 Scott music videos. It's amazing. So that's my Last of Ohio speech. Visit me at www.patreon.com slash Ohio is on fire, and you can purchase a tier. For $1, you can get the show early as I release this for the Eventide Podcast Network nationwide on Fridays. But you can listen to the show on Thursdays if you pay a dollar. For $5, you can get your ad or promo aired on my show, Ohio's on Fire, and it's per episode. For $20, you can take over my show. And for $100, you can book me. Plus, you got to cover my travel expense and my hotel stay. I'll go anywhere in the world. For hundred bucks plus the fees, and I'll bring Ohio's on. I'll bring Ohio's on fire to you. It'll be great. And of course, visit me at www.facebook.com/slash Ohio's on fire show. 
And I'm also at www.twitter.com slash Ohio is on fire. So you can leave messages there. It, I, I rarely post at Twitter, but I am there sometimes. And of course, the home of the Eventide Podcast Network is www.speaker.com. Do a search for Eventide Podcast Network. You can hear all the great shows like My Show Ohio is on Fire, The Breakfast Lads, The Life of Don Smith, and Mike Talks Funny with Mike Shea. And of course, The Drive-In with Aaron Lopez. Plus, several other specialty podcasts that's on there. I'm very happy to be with the network. It's an excellent diversity. An excellent group of people doing podcasts. Please check us out and support us. So until the next episode, it'll be episode 190. Safari, Yerf, Cedar Point. That's the way it is.